Well, we're continuing now in our study. Hopefully, we'll conclude today. We might go one more session, depending how we get through today. But we're continuing now in our study of Romans 7, 7 through 24. This great section of the letter uh, to the Romans by Paul asking the question, does this section of Romans, does this section of Romans 7 in particular, address the normal Christian life? Is Paul saying that this rather horrific struggle that this man is having in this section of Romans is the normative Christian life, the struggle with sin, the struggle with the flesh, under the law, and the despair to which it leads? Is that the normal Christian life? One of the things that those who argue that it is the normal Christian life, is they often say that, well, this person holds the law in high esteem. And we know that the unregenerate, that is to say, those unbelievers in the world, they don't care about the law. They don't hold the law in high esteem. So this must be a regenerate person, because only a regenerate person would hold the law in high esteem like this. But what they fail to argue what they, and realize in their argument, I should say, what they fail to realize in their argument is that Paul is speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking, therefore, to Jewish Christians. He's not necessarily speaking to the Jewish unbelieving synagogue community. He's speaking to those who are in Christ, in Rome, who know the law, therefore to Jewish Christians and or those Gentile God-fearers who, uh, prior to Pentecost, had converted to Judaism. And while they may not have gone all the way to be circumcised, they are now counted among the Jewish community, but then were converted to Christ along with the Jewish community that was in in, uh, Jerusalem on that day and responded to Peter's preaching, made their way back to Rome. So Paul is speaking now to people who know the law and any unbelieving, good, orthodox Jew, as well as any believing Jew, will hold the law in high esteem. In other words, an average Jew in the first century held the law in high esteem. They may have recognized they could not obey it. They may have been... Uh, frustrated with it, as is this man in Romans 7, but that doesn't mean that the unbelieving Jew did not hold the law in high esteem. So that's that's kind of a straw argument to say that only a Christian would hold this uh, law in high esteem as this person does in Romans 7, 7 through 24. One of the things that they often fail to recognize, too, is that Paul mentions not the Spirit once in this text. Not once does Paul mention the work or person of the Holy Spirit in Romans 7, 7 through 24. And for that reason and that reason alone, this struggle that this man is displaying here, Paul is is, uh, describing, cannot be the life of the Christian. The life of the Christian is a life of the Spirit, in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. Indeed, the Christian life begins by a work of the Spirit, a gracious work of the Spirit, regenerating the heart, mind, and will, so that we 
come to Christ at all. We wouldn't even come to Christ. We wouldn't even place our faith in Christ if it wasn't for a prior work of the Spirit. And having been made alive by the Spirit, having come to faith in Jesus Christ by a work of the Spirit, we then are sealed by the Spirit for the redemption that is to come. And we are empowered to live by the Spirit as well, especially in relation to our relationships with one another. So uh, the Christian life is the life of the Spirit under grace, not the life of the flesh under law and sin. We have learned so far, in fact, that in Romans 6 and 7, that we have died both to sin and to the law. And having been released from that which bound us, we now walk in the new way of the Spirit and in the old way of the written code. If I were to give this title, uh, this series, I should say, another title, it would be The New Way of the Spirit. And it is sad, it is tragic, that so many Christians live so far below what the Bible prescribes for them. And they are living in some kind of oppressive state. There's some kind of shallow state. They, they really don't understand. If I were to say, do you realize you live in the new way of the Spirit? Uh, they might give a casual or superficial nod that they do. Others may just look at me and go tilt. They don't know what I'm even talking about. So, so this is an important study for you and for me and for anyone who hears it down the road. Uh, and so I want to just begin today by looking at part four, uh, and that is the life having been um, defined as life of the Spirit, the newness of the Spirit, the new way of the Spirit. What does that mean, though, for the fact that we are still dragging around these old unredeemed bodies? What, what are we supposed to do about that? Or does that play back into Romans 7? Is Paul speaking of the Christian who's who's dealing with the fact that he still has an unredeemed body? Uh, does this go full circle? And I want to be careful today to help you realize that it does not. Uh, the problem with the person in Romans 7, 7 through 24, is that they keep failing. And they can't help but fail. It's what they do. And the closer they get to the law, the more they fail. You don't cry out, O oh, wretched man that I am, unless you are aware of your wretchedness, of you're aware of your failure to keep the law, of your failure to live a godly life. And folks, we can never, never, God forbid, that we would communicate to the Christian church or to the world that the Christian life cannot be lived. And that we're just living in some kind of veil of tears, waiting for Jesus to come back. Nothing would be, well, very little, would be more damaging to the gospel of Jesus Christ than to teach that. And yet, it's being taught. And thus, we are doing this series. So let's look at Romans chapter 8 today. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8, pick it up at verse 12. And uh, I think I'll read initially through verse 30, just to maintain our context, give you a sense of what we're looking at here. And then uh, I'll give some observations, and perhaps we'll conclude there and pick it up next time 
at Romans 8.31. We'll see how far we get here. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Now this is where, let me say first, this is where everything that Paul has described in Romans 8 up to this point, the fact that the, the, um, the, the person is in Christ is now under no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's no eschatological condemnation because through Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus more accurately, the law of the spirit of life has get, set us free from the law of sin and death. And that we now um, uh, have the righteous requirement of the law. Isn't that astounding? The righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. That the requir righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, there are those who might say, well, yeah, yeah, that one day in heaven when we're perfected, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, that's true. But it isn't all that means. It means that, that the righteous requirement of the law is being met in us now. Every time we do something out of, the, out of the desires of the Spirit rather than the desires of the flesh as we used to, every time we walk in obedience to the Spirit, we are fulfilling the law. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that law is, excuse me, love is the fulfillment of the law. So for the first time in our lives, now that we are in Christ, we're able to actually love. We weren't even able to spell love when we were still in Adam. And that now we're able to love God, obey God, and by the power of the same Spirit, to love others with a sense that is uh, unknown to us before. And it is a fulfillment then of the law. Let no debt remain outstanding, Paul says in Romans 13, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So we're not talking about sentimentality here, are we? Nope. We're not talking about just a, a, a nice warm feeling towards another, are we? Not at all. We're learning to live and walk in love as Christ loved. And we know that Christ fulfilled the law. So the righteous requirement of the law to obey God and to love our neighbor is being met in us. That's the normal Christian life. And now I, I mentioned last time we're in the realm of the flesh. We're not in the realm of the flesh, but we're in the realm of the spirit. That there's a realm of the flesh being the realm of the unbeliever and the realm of the spirit in which the believer now resides, now belongs. Very important principle to understand that these are absolutes. Now, it may feel like we are in the realm of the flesh from time to time, but we don't judge our theology, nor do we judge the truth by our feelings. We judge it by the, the, the reality that is presented in the text. And once we do, our minds will adapt to the truth and we'll begin to realize that we are living in the realm of the Spirit and that those momentary struggles, those momentary afflictions will pass. That where the flesh still tugs at us, the flesh still likes us to think it's in control, and it is not. That would be a habitual response. We need to rehabituate ourselves now to the work of the Spirit. So we are no longer in the realm of the flesh. We are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed we are in Christ, and if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now all of those 
are the indicatives of what it means to live the normal Christian life. Now, that's an important word, indicative, meaning it is typical. It is what you do, just as anything by nature does what it is, can, only can do by nature. So also, we who have received a new nature by grace through the work of the Spirit have been raised up from being dead in trespasses and sins and made alive we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and now there's something that's indicative about our new nature. Our regenerate mind, our regenerate will, our regenerate uh, heart has a, a character to it, just like we had a character uh, when we were in Adam. We have a new character, a new way of living in the Spirit, and it's indicative, it's typical of us. And so, Paul sets forth very carefully in all of his letters, nearly all of his letters, the indicative of what it means to be a Christian and walking in the power and the grace and the mercy of the Spirit and what are the imperatives that follow. Now that you are in Christ, now that you are here, what does it look like? And so in verse 12 now, he begins the imperatives. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Now, let me ask you real quickly. What was the obligation of that man in Romans 7, 7 through 24? What led him to cry out that he, what a wretch that he was? He was under obligation to the flesh. No matter how highly he esteemed the law, he found himself consistently under obligation to act out in the flesh whether it was coveting or whatever it was. So Paul's telling us now that the imperatives that follow the indicative of the Christian life is to not be under an obligation, that is, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you're an unbeliever, you're going to die. If you live by the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. There you go. The normal Christian life is to be a child of God, being led by the Spirit. Verse 13, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. When did... When did these people live in fear? When did Paul's audience, his readers, live in fear? Romans 7, 7 through 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. We live in fear knowing that we can't keep the law. The Jews struggled with the law. They couldn't keep the law. And then there were those deluded Pharisees who believed that they could, and they were deluded. Jesus called those men well, whitened sepulchers. Looked good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. So the fear, again, that he's talking about here is the fear of condemnation. Knowing that the law is just and righteous and good, but we are not. We need a new nature. We need a Savior. We need to be redeemed. And thanks be to God, we have been in Christ. So, the Spirit you received 
does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Fearing condemnation is not the normal Christian life. Well, what is? Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's the normal Christian life, is to cry as Jesus himself did, Abba, Father. The, the familial relationship. Jesus came into the world to share with us his own fellowship with the Father so that we have we are joint heirs with Christ in spirit and mind and will and so that we too now cry out abba father the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children there you are another indicator of the normal christian life that the spirit himself is continually testifying with our spirit that we are God's children. I might add here that the old Puritans, most of them, used to teach that this this was something that was only for the select few. That the Spirit would bear witness of the um, uh, with your spirit that, that you are God's children was only something for the select hyper spiritually good people. Not for everybody. The, the average Christian did not experience that. But that certain elite Christians would. What a horrible doctrine. What a horrible teaching. And you see, all of these, all of these things come out of the state church. That's just full of nominalism, full of unregenerate citizens of the state who happen to have been baptized as infants and they're in the church and they, they know they're not Christians. I mean, those who are Christians know these people aren't Christians. Most of Christian leaders know that they're not Christians. And so they have to come up with all these ways to minimize and dismiss and, and rationalize away the glories of life in the Spirit under the New Covenant. And so they will tell you, here Paul says quite clearly, quite clearly, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. He doesn't say the Spirit himself testifies with the elite or the spiritually mature or those who have arrived. No, with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are in God's household, a family. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, Paul's just adding that last little part there, not as a condition, but as, a, again, an imperative. We must be prepared to share in his um, sufferings. Listen, if you want to comply with all the religiosity in the world, you're probably not going to suffer. The world loves its own. You're going to be okay. If you want to comply with the traditions of the state church, you'll probably be okay too. You'll become a good church member, respectable church member. Everything will be just fine. They'll have a nice funeral for you and give great eulogies when you die. But, if you choose to follow the narrow road, 
to follow the blood-stained footprints of Jesus. And you choose the way of the new way of the Spirit, as opposed to the old way of the letter, you will be persecuted. You will suffer rejection at best. And depending on which part of the world you're in at the moment, you may suffer death, martyrdom. And so Paul's just interjecting this here, that we must be prepared. If we are to be co-heirs with Christ, which we are, and because we do also as Christ did, cry, Abba, Father, we must be prepared to understand that that includes sufferings on some level. Paul said it in Timothy, in his, in his letter to Timothy, that all who desire to live godly shall suffer persecution. So there's, a, uh, there's, there's part of the sufferings that we want to consider here. Sufferings do happen, not because we're struggling with the law, not because we're struggling with the flesh, not because we're struggling with sin as our master. No, all those things we've already addressed, haven't we? We've put those things aside. Now we're walking in the Spirit. We're saying, Abba, Father. We're sharing our um, relationship uh, in our relationship with the Father, with Jesus. We're co-heirs with Christ. And the, the world hates Jesus. It has always hated Jesus. It always will hate Jesus. And the more we become like him, please make a note now, it will hate us too. These are the external sufferings of struggling with sin. The struggle with sin is real, but the struggle with sin is not against the law and by being obligated to the flesh. The struggle with sin is the struggle with false religion, primarily. Hebrews 12.4 tells us, uh, let's see here. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, referring to Jesus' own life and death. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So persecution will come. Persecution, in fact, God may use to bring you into maturity, to, to deepen your conviction, and to enhance your testimony to the world. So there's an external struggle with sin. We cannot live in a fallen world and walk as Christ did and expect not to engage in some degree of external suffering. So, now he goes on about these sufferings in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, uh, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to uh, be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been growing as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This is alluding to the fact that all of creation is awaiting for the revelation of the children of God, the sons of God. We are in a now and not yet state. All that is ours in Christ has been inaugurated by his first coming and by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. But we are not yet fully realized. And so even creation itself is groaning, awaiting for that day when our redemption is fully realized. He says in verse 23 of chapter 8 of Romans, Not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we awake eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So the outward, external expression of suffering and the internal expression of suffering are happening. But we are groaning inwardly. The, the, the internal suffering is not with, with the law and with the flesh and with sin. We have been given by the power of the Spirit. I can't emphasize this enough. Let us never grieve the Spirit. Let us, let us never quench the Spirit. And God forbid, let us never insult the Spirit by saying for a moment that we have to sin. That we have to oblige the flesh. Or worse yet, that somehow we can truly use the law properly. All of those stances are stances that reflect those who reject the Spirit. And beloved, that is an ominous thing to do. Don't ever go there. The Christian life can be lived. It is being lived. It has been lived by the saints and, and, and martyrs throughout the church uh, history. And we are living it today. I am aware myself that I am completely reliant upon the Spirit to live the Christian life, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I've tried to live the Christian life in my own self, in my own strength. It was awful. And, it, and if I start thinking like that again, even the notion of that is, remains awful. So, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly. So inwardly, eagerly, and what are we awaiting for? The adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies. Now let me do a little exegesis here, a little exegetical study. Now I'm going to turn to Philippians 3.20, where Paul says something very similar. He says this, um, bum, bum, bum. But we eagerly await a Savior from there, meaning heaven. Let me back up and read the full context. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have kept us as a model, keep your eye on those who live as we do. Clearly, the Christian life can be lived. For as I have often told you before, now I tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, still trying to live by law. 
Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Hallelujah. We have so much good happening in our lives right now because of the presence of God in our life by the Spirit, through the Scriptures, in the Gospel. And we have nothing but glory to look forward to. The Christian is really the only person on the planet who can afford to be optimistic. How can you be an unbeliever and watch CNN for 15 minutes and be optimistic? It can't happen. <laughs> it won't happen. I can barely uh, stand to watch it myself or any other cable news channel. No, our, our hope, our hope is tied in the glorious news that we are in Christ now and that our redemption, a full redemption of our bodies is coming. For in this hope we were saved, Romans 8, 14. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. See, he's acknowledging that we have weakness. Why do we have weakness? Because we're still carrying around these unredeemed bodies. So are we just to give up? We just to throw up our hands and say, well, I can't help it. You know, I sin. And Paul said he struggled too. So, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. As I said before, let us not insult or grieve or quench the spirit by having entertaining such thinking. Rather, as we walk in the spirit, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't even know what we ought to pray for. But the spirit, it, it but the Spirit himself, excuses me, intercedes for us through wordless groans. This is not speaking in tongues. This is the normal groans that rise up through our spirit as we are praying. We don't even know. If you think for a moment that you have to be eloquent in order for your prayers to be heard, think again. You cannot invoke God's goodness in your life because you reach some level of eloquence and articulation in your prayers. Here he's just saying, all you got to do is groan. <laughs> Have you ever felt like groaning? Maybe you feel like groaning today. Groan, brothers and sisters, groan before God. And know that the Spirit in you is working in you, helping you to pray intercedes, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The, the Spirit is groaning with us. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So there we have this glorious reality that while we're still in these unredeemed bodies, awaiting the full adoption, the redemption of our bodies, the Spirit is at work in us, strengthening, comforting, empowering, interceding for us. This is why you must come away from this study 
understanding that the normal Christian life is not that of a struggle with sin in the flesh under law, but a, but a, but a life lived out in the power and comfort and strength of the Holy Spirit. And while our weaknesses are real, while our groanings are real, he intercedes for us. He is, we are not groaning. Our weaknesses are, we're not left alone in our weaknesses. We're not groaning alone. He groans with us. And then verse 28 has this beautiful declaration. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. What purpose is that? Well, first of all, it's to be part of the people of God. It's God's eternal purpose to be to create a people who share in his holiness and their relationships with one another. But the greater and particular purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. And God is causing all things to work together for good to that end. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you realize that that is God's absolute, paramount, ultimate purpose for your life? And that is to be conformed perfectly to the image of his Son. And that is a work that is in you right now. Jesus struggled with external sin. He struggled with wicked men, persecution. He suffered inwardly, even at Gethsemane. He sweat great drops of blood. Jesus experienced his humanity to the fullest, and we will too. But God was with him, and God is with you. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, you've probably heard it before but I'm going to say it again. Everything I just read is in the past tense. God has accomplished your redemption in Jesus Christ. It's not 90% accomplished, leaving 10% for you to be finished and do it. He hasn't done 99%. I once heard Billy Graham tell the audience, God has done 99%. The 1% now is up to you. I guess you have to say that if you're an evangelist trying to motivate people. But the fact is, God has done 100%. God has accomplished at the cross and the resurrection, as affected by the Spirit at Pentecost, all that is necessary for life and godliness for you. And it's a done deal. There's nothing to be added. And there's nothing we dare take away. This notion that somehow Christ died to make salvation possible may work in Roman Catholicism, excuse me, Greek Orthodoxy, and even some Protestant circles, but it's not the gospel. 
The gospel is that God has accomplished an eschatological work in the present day and present history at the cross with the resurrection as affected by the Spirit at Pentecost so that we are in Christ and we are redeemed. And he is conforming us to the image of his Son. Let me say it this way. You are already who you will be in God's eyes. And now the Christian life is about working that out. It's about rehabituating ourselves to that end so that when it is fully realized, we shall see Christ as he is and we shall be like him in perfection, perfectly conformed to his image in thought, word, deed, will, and ultimately in body as well. He also justified these he justified, he also glorified. Glorification, not justification, is God's end for you. Too many times as Protestants we treat justification as if it's an end unto itself, but it's not. Well, I'm justified, so I'm good. No. <laughs> we need to work out the glory that's in us too. We need to work out everything that God has vested in us. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that we should work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in us, both causing us both to will and to do according to his good purpose. There's that word again, purpose. And what have we decided is his purpose? His purpose is to conform you to the image of his son. So let me conclude this episode, and we'll wrap it up next time uh, with this thought, this, this very important awareness. The normal Christian life is being conformed into the image of Jesus. The normal Christian life is ever-increasing conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. And with that, we have great comfort, we have great hope, we have great joy, and don't let anyone rob you of it by pointing you back to the law and calling you to live in the flesh in the struggle with the sin and think that somehow you're being pious. That may be what that tradition teaches, but it's not what the Bible teaches. And I hope you've seen that so far. So let's pause here. Next time, I want to talk with you more about this transformation process. How that under the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant, we are being progressively, ever increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That glorious image. That's the great joy and the great delight. And we'll look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10, and talk about that then. May the Lord bless you and strengthen you. May the Lord give you great joy as you contemplate the good things that he's accomplished for you in his Son. Amen.